Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you that you have become flesh, that you live, that you taught, that you embodied the kingdom, and then you died, and then you rose. And that's where we are in the story in this Easter season. We believe that you are alive. We believe that your spirit is here in each believing heart as well as corporately as we gather as your church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would feed us very much like you did those disciples on the beach, that we might be nourished by your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When someone asks you, how are you doing, how do you normally respond? Fine. It's one of the most common questions that we ask each other, but it's actually very difficult to answer. We are complex creatures. We have mixed emotions, conflicting thoughts. Sometimes we don't actually know how we're doing. We may not even be conscious of certain things that are making us feel good or bringing us down. Sometimes we're not aware of the physiological things going on in our bodies. Maybe the the sleep we had or didn't have the night before or something we ate or didn't eat for breakfast that's affecting our mood. Other times we know quite well how we're doing. Uh, But socially, it's really not the time to share. Somebody might say how you're doing, but they don't really want to know how you're doing, and so we we don't share, or sometimes we do, and we go on at length. So the how are you doing question can be a difficult one. So often our default response is fine. But have you heard what fine actually stands for? Feeling insecure, neurotic, and emotional. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm feeling insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Or we might say good. How are you doing? I'm good. I made this one up. I'm grumbling, overscheduled, overworked, and depressed. I'm good. So we have churches full of people who are fine and good. There's another way to understand how we're doing, but we have to ask a slightly different question. Not how are you, but how are your relationships? How are your relationships? That question can tell us a lot about how we're really doing. Because human beings are relational creatures. We were created for relationships, were we not? So how those relationships are going will say a lot about how we are doing. So take a moment and think about the relationships in your life. If you're married, how's your relationship with your spouse right now? If you have children, how are those relationships? For, for those who are living in the house of their parents, how are those relationships to your parents? If you have a job, how's that relationship with your boss or your coworkers or the ones under you? And then you could extend that to other friendships, to neighbors, to extended family, to church members. Most significant of all is that vertical relationship with Christ. If you want to know how you're really doing, consider your relationships. Well, we've been as a church in the book of Ephesians for a long time. Back since the fall, we've taken some breaks, but we've been making our way through this book, and we're coming towards the end. We're moving now out of chapter 5 into the last chapter to chapter 6. But at the beginning, or at the end of of chapter 5 and going into 6, Paul is going to shift his focus onto relationships. Now, he's been talking about our relationship to God and Christ all along, but now he's going to talk about what a a gospel-filled relationships among human beings look like, 
He's going to say, hey, when this, this gospel that I've preached in 1, 2, and 3, when it, when it gets a hold of a person or it gets a hold of a community, this is what it looks like. He's specifically going to address marriage, family, and economic relationships. But I think what he says is applicable to really any type of relationship. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 21, and if you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have your Bibles with you or your iPhone Bibles, it's chapter 5, Ephesians, verse 21. Paul is going to introduce a relational practice. We might call it a relational discipline. Some have named it as a spiritual discipline. It's this discipline or practice that is key to healthy, spirit-filled relationships. It is the practice of submission. For the next several weeks, we're going to look at this relational practice of submission and what it looks like in different types of relationships. But I want to offer you a, a promise along with this little mini-series on submission. It's actually the Apostle Paul who offers the promise in the beginning of 6 when he's speaking to children. He's telling children to obey their parents, which is the type of submission. And he references the fifth commandment about honoring your father and mother, and he highlights the promise that God attached to the commandment, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, this is a specific promise attached to the fifth commandment, but I think we're safe to take that general idea and apply it to other relationships. Basically, if we're following God's plan for a relationship, and in this particular case, if we're following his teaching on submission, things will go well for us will be in sync with his spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that every relationship is going to be easy. Although you might find that as you practice this, especially if you haven't practiced it before, you might notice something begin to change in a relationship. But in this larger sense, when, when someone would ask us the question, well, how are you doing? And we, we think, well, how am I doing by reflecting on our relationships? I think we'll be able to say, you know, I'm actually doing okay. doesn't mean all the problems are going to go away. But even if that other party doesn't change, as you step into responding and loving and relating to someone in the way that God has designed, it's going to go a lot better for you. Now, as I say submission, I suspect that there are a lot of ideas coming to your mind, and many of them might not be pleasant. You may have had some bad experiences with this practice. Maybe these verses in Ephesians have even been used against you in some way. Maybe even used abusively against you in some way. And so I suspect that there might be some nervousness, some fear, some defensiveness. And so I want to say, hang with me over the next few weeks. And more importantly, lean into the Holy Spirit. Let Him speak to your heart and into your relationships. The truth that the Spirit brings to us through Scripture and through conviction, it sometimes convicts us, it sometimes hurts, it often requires something of us, but it always leads us into freedom. Do you believe that? If God is bringing truth into your life, it will bring us into freedom. It never leads us into bondage again. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So this teaching from God the Holy Spirit through his Apostle Paul is not meant to lead you into bondage. It's about freedom. 
It's about life. It's about flourishing of relationships. So this, this may be hard for you to reflect on, but hang in there and lean into the Holy Spirit as he walks with you. And remember that the goal is freedom. That's where he's leading all of us in our relationships. Now, there are a lot of ways that we could come at this topic of submission. But it's helpful to note that submission is very closely connected to authority. So if you looked up the Greek word for submission in the New Testament, virtually every time it's used, it has some sort of authority or hierarchy in mind. So to understand submission, we must understand authority. And if we have a faulty understanding of authority, then we're going to severely distort the practice of submission. And today, we're actually going to begin our mini-series on submission by looking at authority. And I think we'll begin to see how the two are connected. Sometimes when a couple is dating, they get to this point in the relationship where they need to have a DTR. Does anyone know DTR? Yeah, DTR, define the relationship or discuss the relationship. Paisley and I, and early in our relationship, um, we had this, this critical DTR. It happened, I think it was called Pete's Coffee Shop on Capitol Hill, and we didn't really know where this DTR was going, but we had to come in and we had to define and discuss things, and in that case, it opened things up in this great way, and well, now here we are. But sometimes depending on how the relationship is going, a DTR can be quite difficult. It can be quite heavy. It can be quite serious. Well, as a culture right now, we desperately need to have a serious and rather difficult DTR concerning our relationship to authority. Because the relationship, if I could be so blunt, is in shambles. There is distrust of authority. There is disregard of authority. There is abuse of authority, and it's being felt at every level. We see it politically. Leaders have misused or abused their authority, and so there is distrust for leaders. We see it racially in these repeated, these tragic examples of a law enforcement officer killing someone. How did it happen? Was there a disregard for authority? Was there an abuse of authority? We see it in schools. Teachers need authority to, to run their classrooms so they can actually teach, but too often they don't have the authority. Young people don't, don't respect their teachers. We see it in families. It's a huge lack of this. This might be the source of it. Oftentimes, because that, that stable family unit that can model God's loving authority is just not present. The, the mom or the dad's not in the picture. There's a broken family. Maybe a, a grandmother or somebody else has stepped in. Or maybe there is a stable family unit, but our, our parenting practices, like a pendulum, have just swung. And so a lot of parents today don't discipline or, or correct their children. They, they allow themselves to be disrespected or disobeyed, which what does that do? It, well, it teaches the children that authority isn't important, that it can be disrespected and disobeyed. And we see it in the church. Pastors misusing, abusing their authority, congregants disrespecting, disregarding church leaders, just, just leaving when they have a disagreement. And I think most tragically of all, we see it morally. We, we don't have a moral compass. We're, we're quickly losing that as a culture, as a society. The reason is we don't want any authority to tell us what's right and what's wrong. We want to decide for ourselves. The common thread weaving through all of these examples is that we want to be our own highest authority. We don't want to come under, to submit to the authority of anyone besides ourselves. 
Sometimes we have reasons for that because authority has been abused. But I think it's also because of this deeper condition of the human heart. It's easy to point fingers out here, different situations. The question I really want to ask is, do you see it in yourself? Do you see this in yourself? It's actually very hard to see, I think. We're blinded to it. But every human being has it. In our fallen state, we resist coming under authority. Or to put it a little differently, we want to follow our own will, not the will of someone else. We can call it pride, we can call it self-centeredness or arrogance. It's that universal tendency we have to put ourselves on the throne of our own lives and submit to our own will and desires, but not to anyone else's. So we need to have this DTR with authority. The relationship is not well. To understand authority rightly and to understand what went wrong, we must go back to the beginning. In the first three chapters of Genesis, it's all laid out for us. In the beginning, a sovereign, a loving God created everything, and he created us. He placed us in his creation, but he didn't do so willy-nilly. didn't just throw us out there and say, all right, have fun, do your best. He placed us in an ordered world. There was a structure to it ecologically, relationally, morally. There was hierarchy. We think about hierarchy today as a bad thing, I think because of so much abuse, but in the beginning it was good. There was God, there was us, and he placed us over creation. He gave us authority to to rule over it, to subdue it, to have dominion, to steward it, to cultivate it. But we were still under his authority. He told us what to do, be fruitful, multiply, what not to do, don't eat from that tree. And for a time we knew perfect peace and freedom under God's authority. But then something happened. A snake, a lie, a piece of fruit. And through that lie and that fruit, we we stepped out from under the loving authority of God and into this destructive position of acting as our own highest authority. We said to God, thank you very much, but no, we know best now. We can take care of ourselves. We spurned the authority of God. We'd rejected submission to his word and the world fell apart. In a very sad twist of irony, we were grasping for freedom, but what we found was bondage. Because only the truth of God's word can set us free. Believing the lie that we can do better leads to bondage. So that's where this universal tendency to resist submission comes from. It's part of original sin. It's our fallen condition to assert our will over and against the will of others. Well, in God's mercy, he he didn't give us over to that rebellion. He continued to establish authority in history in, in lots of different ways. And he did it for the same reason that he did in the beginning, because life works best when there's order, when there are proper relationships to authority. You see, from God's perspective, authority is not about restricting freedom in life. Authority is about cultivating it. Authority is a way that God protects and promotes shalom. Protects, promotes shalom. Shalom, if you don't know, it's the Hebrew word for peace, but it means a lot more. It's this word that describes wholeness, goodness, flourishing of all of life. It's the kind of the way it was meant to be, shalom. So although we resist authority, 
at every turn. God knows it's good for us, and so he continues to express it in our world. And his normal pattern is to mediate his authority through various institutions that he's established. So government, it's established by God. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject or submit, same word, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's a little bit of a confusing verse, because it doesn't mean that every government is godly. Remember, Paul wrote this under the Roman Empire, hardly godly. But he is able to say that, listen, this is established, even this, established by God. And they're being used, albeit imperfectly, to, to mediate God's authority, to execute justice, to uphold the rule of law, to promote the well-being of people. Marriage and family, another one of God's designs to mediate his authority to promote shalom. As we step into his design for marriage and family, we find freedom and life. God established marriage as between a man and a woman, and there's this order to it that promotes shalom. And he established different roles in marriage, not different values, but different roles. Now, many of those roles are culturally determined. But I think we can see from Scripture that God established an order between husband and wife. And it involves things like headship, authority, leadership. And so Paul will go on to say, wives, submit to your husband. There's an authority there. There's an, there's an order. Why? For shalom. For freedom, for goodness, not for slavery, not for bondage, not for mistreatment. It's a humanizing thing, not a dehumanizing thing. But too often it is practiced in that latter way, isn't it? It's this dehumanizing, this controlling thing, this, this, this lording it over. And so understandably, many wives are nervous when it comes to this teaching about submission in marriage. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to carefully unpack those, those passages from Ephesians. With children, God establishes an order as well. He mediates his authority to children through their parents. They're to learn what it looks like to live under loving authority from their parents. Scary prospect for those of you who have children. It's a very imperfect picture, but it's meant to reflect God's loving authority and correction. That's why he says to the children, to honor, to submit, to obey their parents. Why? because it ruins my fun, because they're being controlling. No, because it promotes shalom. It's for your well-being. Life will go well with you. God also mediates his authority to the world through his people. In the Old Testament, that was the Jews. Now that Christ has come, it is through the church. Now, God always has in focus the wider world, but he has this vehicle of his people to mediate his authority and presence. And then even within the church... God establishes authority. Now, sometimes we as Christians, we resist this idea of authority in church. We want to flatten everything in church. Again, the reason, we've seen abuses of it, so we want to get rid of it. But in the New Testament, it's not flattened out. You still see these offices of leadership and authority established. God cares about there being order in the church. The Apostle Paul was passionate about the authority of apostles and other leaders because it was directly tied to the gospel being spread and believed. And so if authority went, then so did the gospel for him. So in the Anglican Church, we've recognized three particular offices of ordained leadership, deacons, presbyters or elders, we call them priests sometimes, and then bishops. 
Other traditions do it different ways. But the point is that God establishes authority in the church and he instructs his people to respect, to honor, and to submit to that authority. Why? For the flourishing of the church, for the spread of the gospel, for the increase of shalom. So I wanted to trace out this relationship that we have with authority. We, we see that it's not in a good place right now. We, we see where that came from. And we see, if we're honest, and we look into our hearts, we see that resistance. But as we go back and we recognize God's original plan for authority, it's this protection, it's this promotion of shalom. And we're wise to come under that, to submit to that, because it will go well for us. So coming back to Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul's going to talk about submission, going to talk about it in different types of relationship, but he connects it to Jesus. So look at 521. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Then moving into chapter 6, verse 5, slaves, obey your masters. We got to unpack that one, but as you would Christ. So every time he's saying, Christ, Christ, Jesus, look at Jesus. There's no way we can understand submission and authority apart from Christ. That's why Paul keeps bringing it up every single time. Jesus is the interpretive key to the passage. And I would suggest that whenever um, the practice of submission is misused, it's because there's not been an adequate consideration of Christ as the center of it. So in the weeks to come, we're going to look at those individual verses and those relationships. But I want to conclude this morning by asking, what do we learn about authority when we look at Jesus, when we look at his life? What do we learn about authority as we look at Jesus? God has all these different ways of mediating authority on earth, but Jesus is the definitive expression of God's authority. He said in Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So in Christ, we have this embodiment of authority. What do we see when we look at him? I want to point to two hugely important truths about authority, which in turn help us understand submission. First, what did the centurion of Luke 7 know? What did the centurion of Luke 7 know? He knew something about authority. We need to understand it. You remember the story? You have this centurion. He's an officer in the Roman army. He's in the area of Capernaum, and he reaches out to Jesus because he's in need. A very special member of his household, this this dear servant to him, was ill at the point of death. And he's heard of Jesus, and so he sends servants to Jesus to ask Jesus to heal the one who's dying. And he's very humble and respectful in in the way that he approaches Jesus. It shows faith. But his appeal reveals something profound about authority. If you want to pick up the story, it's Luke 7 in verse 6. The centurion says to Jesus, But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
So the centurion, he understood that Jesus had this authority over his sickness and death. He didn't even have to come to the house. All he had to do is say the word. Credible faith. He was seeing what many Jews at the time in, in the land were not seeing. But he also sees where the authority came from. The key is verse 8 when he says, I too am a man set under authority. The centurion sees that Jesus' authority, as great as it is, comes from being under the authority of God. And it took a Roman soldier to see this because he understands the chain of command. You see, friends, to have authority, we must be under authority. To have authority, we must be under the authority. If that's the case with Jesus, it's certainly the case with us. God calls each of us in different ways to express authority in relationships. But you only have it as much as you're under it. In the beginning, he gave us incredible authority over all the world, but it was under his authority. Husbands and fathers, can I talk to you for a moment? Do you want to have authority in your marriage, in your family, with your children? Are you under authority? Have you truly bended your knee to the authority of Christ? Is he on the throne of your life, or are you really still calling the shots? Are you submitted to his scriptures? Are you coming under them? Are you submitted to his church? Or are you trying to do the Lone Ranger Christian thing, which doesn't work, doesn't exist? Do you have Christian brothers who can speak with authority into your life, confronting you if necessary and pointing you back to Christ? And will you listen to them? If you're not under authority, you don't have any. You might still have some sort of office, some sort of role, some sort of position, but it's empty. If you're not submitted, don't expect others to submit to you. So that's specifically to to husbands and fathers, but it applies to all of us. In the workplace, in the home, in the church, we, we have so many different types of relationships, but they all can have this authority. Sometimes it's just the authority to speak truth to someone or maybe to confront them with the truth, or to love them, or to build them up. We must be under authority if we want to have it, if we want to express it in the lives of others. So that's the first thing we see as we look at Jesus' life and through the eyes of this centurion, this Gentile who got something really profound. We have it by being under it. But second, Jesus defines how we use authority. He tells us what authority is for. Remember, he is the definitive expression of God's authority. So how did he use it? Flip over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Just the book after Ephesians. Another letter by Paul. Philippians chapter 2. In this passage, Paul is encouraging the Philippian Christians in their relationships with each other. He's encouraging them to be humble, to be loving, to be unified. And so not surprisingly, he he points to the example of Jesus. But what he says about Jesus, as you begin to press into this passage, is actually quite shocking. It's Philippians 2, verses 6 and following. Christ Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, all authority. Jesus, in the very nature of God, Jesus equal with God, what did he do with his power and authority? He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He became obedient to what? To death, to death on a cross, to the one thing that would save others and set them free. Sometimes we think about Jesus and his humanity, his divinity, and we say, well, well, he did that in spite of being in God. But no, 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 no. He did that because he is God. That's who God is. That's his nature. Self-giving love, humility, pouring oneself out for the beloved. Do you realize what this means? Completely takes the world's understanding of authority and power and turns it over. The one with the highest authority went the lowest. The one with all absolute power became weak because that's what it means to have authority. That's what authority is for, to serve, to stoop down, to give oneself away in love. It's to be free to actually become a slave in a different sort of way, to become a slave to the good of others. That's how we use authority. Jesus didn't come to abolish all authority. He didn't come to flatten everything. Rather, he came to radically redefine what authority means. Always to bless, always to serve, always for the good of others, always for shalom, not for our own advantage not lording it over others, not manipulating power for selfish gain, but death to self that others might live. We have to take that understanding of authority into Ephesians 5 and 6 if we're going to understand what Paul's going to say about submission. Husbands and wives, you need to understand this if you're to make a marriage work. Parents and children, you got to get together on this. Employers and employees if you want to have a company that, that functions, you, you got to get together on this. It's written into the fabric of creation. Those with authority, which really is all human beings, if we look at the creation account, we are to use that authority to serve and to bless. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning, and we have more to go. You guys want to come back next week, you're welcome to. But let me come back to that question. How are your relationships? The Lord has something he wants to say to each of us. Do you believe that? He wants to speak into your life. He wants to speak into your relationships. Will you you open them to him, your your heart to him, your your will to his? Maybe today he's already brought to the surface. Maybe he didn't even have to because you came in here with a relationship on your mind. So I want to close today by just giving a little time, just a little time of quiet for you to pray, for you to do business with God, for you to offer relationships to him and ask him to draw near and begin to work. Let's pray.